Hey, this is Dave Burkus, author of Friend of a Friend, and you are listening to the Inspiration Place podcast with Miriam Shulman. It's the Inspiration Place podcast with artist Miriam Shulman. Welcome to the Inspiration Place podcast, an art world insider podcast for artists by an artist, where each week we go behind the scenes to uncover the perspiration and inspiration behind the art. And now, your host, Miriam Shulman. Well, hello, this is your host, Miriam Shulman, and you're listening to episode number 22 of the Inspiration Place podcast, and I'm thrilled that you're here. Today, I've invited a guest who is an expert in human behavior because we've been talking a lot about networking lately, and if one of your goals is to finally get in a gallery, get noticed by the press, well, guess what? You've got to meet people. So in this episode, we're going to dive deep on the psychology of being famous, why you might want to attend that high school reunion after all, and why you can skip networking events in order to network even better in more authentic ways. But before we get there, I wanted to tell you about Audible. Although I love nothing more than a physical book so I can write in it and take notes as well as stick it on my shelf like a trophy. I also love listening to audiobooks, which is why Audible subscription is a must-have. I definitely listen to books while I'm painting in order to shut down my inner critic, so it's definitely a win-win. Now, if you don't already have an Audible account, you can get your first month for free at audibletrial.com slash the inspiration place. I've also put together a list of some of my favorite books on shulmanart.com forward slash book club. For this week, we're going to be trying something a little different. My guest today has a workbook that goes along with his book, and it's all about becoming a better networker without attending icky cocktail parties or networking events. So this week, I'm including a link to download his workbook on my show notes. It's completely free. All you have to do is enter your email and my guest will send it to you. We'll be discussing the lessons this month in my free Facebook group, The Inspiration Place. If you're not already a member, I'd love to have you. Just go to shulmanart.com forward slash group to join. And as always, you can get the links for everything I mentioned in today's show notes, which you can find at shulmanart.com forward slash 22. Now let's get right to the show. Today's guest is a best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, and associate professor of leadership and innovation at Oral Roberts University. His newest book, Friend of a Friend, offers readers a new perspective on how to grow their networks and build key connections, one based on the science of human behavior, not just rote networking advice that we've all heard before. He's delivered keynotes to leaders of Fortune 500 companies and the future leaders of the United States Naval Academy. His TED Talk has been viewed nearly 2 million times, and he's a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review. Please welcome to the inspiration place, David Berkus. Hey, David. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for joining me. Oh, no. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the reason I invited you, David, is because, as I was mentioning before we started recording, I am a business book junkie. <laughs> and you I, and me both. And I especially love those that are based on research like yours. So 
I really enjoyed Friend of a Friend. I love the way you weave in the research with the anecdotes. And I know that other artists would enjoy it, especially because you've included talk about Marana Glass and the Mona Lisa as examples. So I was really anxious to invite you here so we can dive into some of the finer points that will help artists like me build our network so we can sell more art. Does that sound good? Yeah, that's exactly what I would tell them. So I just appreciate you saying it for me. (laughs) (laughs) I do my my homework. I'm a good student. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's get started right away because we have a lot to talk about. All right. So in chapter seven, it is a deep dive into what you call preferential attachment. And for some reason, I, I don't know if you said this in the book or if I just made this up myself. I call it the psychology of being famous. So did I make that up? You totally made that up, but I'm going to steal it. (laughs) Okay. All right, cool. All right. So what is preferential attachment? So besides being just a a really great $10 SAT vocab type word, um, preferential attachment really, to be honest, explains why it seems like networking and making connections comes so easy to some people and not to others. As a network, meaning not like your network, like the collection of contacts you have, but a network like an industry or a sector, you know, like we could pick like the art community or the art community in a city or what have you as an example. As that network grows and evolves, what we find is that the people who are already the most connected are the most likely to get introduced to new people, right? It's a sort of Matthew effect, rich get richer kind of effect. And it makes sense. If you were a new person entering into that community, and you meet a total stranger, the person that's already connected to the most people is going to be the one that most people sort of refer you to. So what happens over time is you get these people that have a, a Pareto-like principle, an 80-20 principle that have tons and tons of connections, more, way more than your average. And I think preferential attachment is important for two reasons. The, the first being that those people that we look at that think, oh, they know everybody and I'm never going to get there. The truth is most of them have just been doing it for a while, right? And the connections have begun to compound and that compound, it's sort of like compounding interest, not entirely, but very, very similar in that the longer you do it, the more of a benefit that you get. The other thing that I think is encouraging is that it doesn't matter where you are, eventually preferential attachment will work. So it's kind of a flywheel effect. You've got to put in the work, but don't get discouraged because you're putting in work and not getting the same results of other people. You'll get there eventually if you just keep going. The way I like to think of it is the reason XYZ famous artist has 50,000 Instagram followers is because she has 50,000 Instagram followers. Or the reason why somebody has a million Instagram followers is because they have a million people see that. And it's like lots of cars at the diner that you, they, people gravitate to the people they see are already gaining success. Right, exactly. I was post the book. I, I started watching a lot of the YouTube videos that Casey Neistat makes, and they're they're brilliant videos. But one of the things he talks about when he he just hit ten million YouTube subscribers, which is unfathomable to me. But um, what he talks about is you know ten million wasn't hard, one million wasn't hard, ten thousand that was hard, yes. right? And then the more that you get, the more that referral networks come in and new introductions come in. It's just easier to be an overnight success if you're already famous. <laughs> right? Yeah. But what, that, what that means for most of us who aren't there is like, just keep working and give it some time and the compound interest will eventually pay off. Awesome. Okay. So one thing that you talk about in that same chapter is how to start your grassroots work to build that networks. 
And you talk a lot about hosting dinners and lunches. So this idea really appealed to me because a lot of artists we all know, or a lot of us are familiar with Gertrude Stein and her salons. And that idea of, well, if you want to be popular, you have to make the party. But so I like this idea of doing this intimate dinner lunch. Can you help us with some guidelines for that? Yeah, um, you're going to be looking at your notes on my book and I'm going off the top of my head, but um, hopefully well, I'm still, wrote, you wrote I know, hopefully I'm still in line with what I said when I wrote it. I mean, the, the biggest thing is it's about scale, right? I, I think a lot of people assume that networking is, okay, I'm going to go to the events. I'm, you know, I'm going to go to the, the shows. I'm going to go to the openings. I'm going to meet new people. And then I'm going to ask them one-on-one for coffee. And like, first of all, there are not enough hours in the day to have coffee with everyone. And second of all, no one wants to have coffee with you. They just like, is that a thing on you listening? It's just, you think like, Oh, it's only 30 minutes. It's never 30 minutes. It's always this really long thing. So, so the question is, how do you scale it to where you're now interacting, reconnecting, building connections with multiple different people? And it's something about humanity, doing it over food is a really good way to up your attendance instead of doing it over not. Um, but also what you, you have a more intimate conversation. You, later in the book, we talk about multiplexity, this idea of getting to know people from multiple different contexts and multiple different things about them. That happens over a longer period of time. So one of the consistent things that we see often with the people that leverage preferential attachment is they chose a dinner party or a lunch party to be one of the, the scales of doing it. And you know, there's, there's a bunch of different things that you have to think through in terms of logistics. Is it going to be you're going to curate the list? Or, you know, I have a good friend, um, Derek Coburn, who always does it. He curates the list, but he only curates half of the attendees and everyone else gets a plus one. And it's not a romantic partner. It's a plus one as in who else do you think would be good to be here? And that's a really good way to scale it. And yeah. you, you get I to love meet. that idea. In fact, I'm actually implementing it next month. I'm organizing a lunch in the city and I've told one of my friends, can you invite your friend, Julie, who I want to get to know? So I'm actually kind of curating who they should bring. Do you, do you think that's a good idea or should I just leave it open to them to bring who they want? So, I mean, it depends. You, you've already, you already know who that person that you want to yeah. be connected to them is, and this becomes the great excuse for it. Yeah. If you don't know, which is a lot of people, like if you just moved to the city, if, if you're the Ernest Hemingway in the story of Gertrude Stein and the whole salon, right? If you don't know a lot of those people, then you might have to leave it open-ended. So it really just kind of depends on, on where you are and what you're looking to get. But I mean, obviously curation is a must. You don't want to buy dinner for random people. The, the bigger... Do you think I need to buy dinner for them? Or can it be so like... I, so this is where you're going to get to in some of the guidelines, right? I think it doesn't matter. I think it just needs to be clear up front, right? So one of my uh, good friends that, that in New York City that does a lot of dinner parties is a woman named Dory Clark, who... It's always uh, everybody picks up their own tab, but it's well communicated ahead of time. She deliberately picks a restaurant that is going to be okay with that, which is really hard to find in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, if instead of a restaurant, you've chosen your home because it's big enough, then you know, there's kind of, there's not, no, no one's going to Venmo you money afterwards or that type of thing. Um, so, you, so you have to think about those sort of things. I think you also have to think about the frequency of what, what is enough and if you want it to be a constant rotation of new people, then a much more common frequency can happen once every two or three weeks, once a month, et cetera. If you're wanting to do it more like a, like a Gertrude Stein would do with the salon sort of feeling, then you may want to space it out even more. Truthfully, I think the most important thing is that you do one. Just get started. Once is not right. enough to build preferential attachment, okay. but twice is so much easier than once. So just get started and learn from your mistakes as you go. 
and you, you know, next month it gets a little better. The next month it gets a little better. It's kind of like when your second child came along. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I have two, I have two boys, so they consistently just, you know, try and jump off things and kill themselves. So two might be harder than one, but I have other friends who who have a very kind, nice, nurturing older child and two becomes easier than one. Yeah. Well, my first child was a girl and I used to look at other mothers with sons and say, why can't they control their children? And Mm. my second child was a boy. Yep, I, I, <laughs> so, I, I just I smile and nod that, deliciously right. when that happens to people. Yeah, <laughs> so I figured that out. Now he's now he's a wrestler at NYU. So, well, you found a constructive use for all that energy. That's perfect. Exactly. <laughs> all right, so David, I actually just discovered also your YouTube channel, which I recommend everyone check out. It has the daily. Are you still doing it daily? This yeah, the daily, the daily. Work. I mean, it's weekdays. I figured out that yeah. when you have work-related content, no one's tuning in on a Sunday. So it's every weekday, but we call it the daily Burke. It just seemed like a good name for it. <laughs> okay. Well, I really like it because first of all, they're super short. So I feel like I could get a lot of value in a quick amount of time. But one of the videos I found, which I think people should definitely check out is why introverts make great networkers. So actually, could you answer that for our listeners now? Because I know a lot of artists are introverts like me. Yeah. So this is something I think, you know, first of all, there's this huge assumption, right? I think we wrongly assume that the cocktail parties, the mixers, the things, the gallery openings, the things that are drawing large numbers of people are the only thing that's count as networking events, right? And even for the people that are listening and thinking like, oh, a dinner party with six people, that doesn't sound too hard, right? That probably is a function of where you are on this introversion versus extroversion scale, where you draw energy from. Small intimate gatherings or big groups of people. And people tend to assume, okay, if networking events are only the things with big people, then big people, big numbers of people, then, <laughs> then, it could then be big people too. It could also be a room full of big people that I think more than just the introverts would be scared of though. Um, so, so we tend to assume that, okay, so clearly just the extroverts are the ones that work the room. Well, the, tr- the truth is everybody's different and you have to play to your strengths. And in the book, we talk about this concept of multiplexity. When you get to know more information about people from multiple different contexts. So we connect because we do similar work but also maybe because we are from the same city or we have the same favorite sports team or favorite musical or whatever it is. When we find those, uh, what people sometimes call uncommon commonalities, we build a deeper connection with people faster. The other thing that we do that's is hugely beneficial is when you know a lot about people in a sort of diverse set of different facets of people, you, it makes it easier to follow up with them because now it's, if you only know them in a work context, you're probably struggling to find a reason to email them every few months to just check in. If you know a bunch of different stuff about them, then kind of organically little things are going to happen. You're going to see an advertisement for that, you know, sh- that show and remember that, oh, that, that's their favorite musical and, and, you know, whatever. I should send them an email and just say, I'm thinking yeah. about them. It happens easier with that. And it turns out that the types of conversations that explore those multiple different facets are the longer conversations, the little sort of deeper, more intimate conversations, the ones that most introverts actually want to have. They don't want to work the room and get to know lots of people and collect lots of business cards. Not that that works very much anyway, but we tend to associate that as good networking. They want to get to know, if, if they walk out of the room only knowing one person, but know them from multiple different facets, over the long term, that's a better connection than working the room, knowing 10 different people, having all their business cards, and not having a clue how you're supposed to follow up with them. I also found as an introvert that at the dinner party event, is what, is what we're using as an example, that I don't have to be the life of that dinner 
party and tell all the funny jokes. As long as I'm a good listener and can hone in on certain details, it makes it so much easier for me to follow up with people and say, hey, you know, you mentioned this the other night. And like you said, here's a resource that I think you might like. So you can form a more authentic connection with people because you're a good listener and because you're not dominating the conversation, but you are taking in the information. Yeah. Now we actually just did a video today. It posted that today about how to make a good first impression. And the key is pretty much what you just said. Stop trying to be the one that's keeping the conversation going and appearing all intelligent and interested. Just be interested in the other person. Be a good listener. Ask them a lot of questions. Care, right? Give a whatever expletive you want to use there, but care. And you end up getting to know them better. You end up with them having a positive impression on you. And like you said, you end up knowing how to follow up with them, which is the big key. That's great. I'll have to check that out when this is over. (laughs) Uh, So also, something else you said that, again, from the YouTube channel, you talk about why your great idea isn't that original. And you say all ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas. Can you unpack that? Yeah. So I think we tend to have this uh, tendency, this idea that the most creative works, the most disruptive innovations, they came out of left field. They changed the game. We use all of these weird analogies to describe them. And in that, there's this subtle message that means that they were wholly original, that nobody else came from that. And when we look at almost every idea in every field is a combination of pre-existing ideas, right? So we could go, we could talk business and talk about a bunch of different business models that were copied from other fields. My favorite example in history is Star Wars, kind of just because I'm a little nerdy, right? And if you, stu- if you, you, you don't have to go very far into studying the creation of it to know that basically George Lucas ripped off Joseph Campbell's monomyth, Akira Kurosawa samurai films, World War II fighter films, and some spaghetti westerns, right? And basically had Star Wars. And there's a couple of fields that are intellectually honest about this, and they'll talk about who are your influences, and then you can yes. see sort of the work of them in other places. But there are other fields that aren't. They just sort of pretend that you've got to be this wholly original, and they sort of degrade copying and covers. And I think that's a, a really, it's a dangerous approach, to be honest with you, because if we're trying to do original work, and we're not also taking the time to consume lots of different things to get those ideas that become the building blocks of our ideas, we're stunting our growth and we're holding ourselves to a a high standard that even our our biggest role models didn't clear because they were working with pre-existing ideas too. And so if it's really just about combining, then it matters how much confidence you have in yourself and your ability to do that same work. And it matters what you consume and what you are watching, listening to, being inspired by, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, Picasso has a great quote. Of course, I'll botch it, but it's something like uh, good artists copy, but great artists steal. And he, he was known for taking other ideas, but then making them better or putting a twist on it. And a lot of artists we talk about, look, if you just copy one idea, yes, that's copying. But if you take it from five different sources, then it's research. Yeah, no, that's the line we use in academics all the time, right? One, one source is plagiarism, multiple right. sources is research. And that's exactly. the real key. Like what, what originality truly is, is original combinations of pre-existing ideas. And that's what we need to celebrate that somebody else connected those dots that we didn't see. But if we right. think that it, they, they weren't connecting dots and we think that they were just, uh, that it came from nothing, what we, you know, ex nihilo creation of something, then we put it on a pedestal that no one would be able to climb up to. And I think that's really dangerous for our own competence and, and competence in our abilities. But it's also just 
it's intellectually dishonest. It's the wrong way to look at the creators that, that inspire us. So interesting. You know, one of the other, my other highlights of your book, chapter four, you talk about how the whole Murano glass in Italy came about. And I actually didn't know this story, how they were kicked off because they were burning, <laughs> burning down houses. Yeah, you burn down your city. They don't, they don't take kindly to that. And they look for ways to get you out of their city. Yeah. Right. I never, I never actually knew that, that the, the glass kilns were burning down the, the houses. So they kicked them out of Venice and then they formed this artistic community. So in that chapter, first of all, it's a fascinating case study, but you also talk about why you need to spend time in communities, and we'll just use the words like artistic communities, but then you also say not too much time. So can we dig into to that as well? Yeah, so, so this is really the key, right? And, and part of it is what we just talked about, that if ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas, right? We know from just studying history that clusters, that groups of people, especially when it comes to creative work, people thrive in those. We've, we've already talked about Gertrude Stein. One of my examples in writing that I love to talk about is, is C.S. Lewis and the Inklings of, of English literature fame. Um, but it happens kind of everywhere, right? There's Franz Johansson has this fantastic book called The Medici Effect of what happened when you got a bunch of different creators from uh, the Renaissance period together. It happens almost all the time. At the same time, we have this other mentality that silos are bad, right? That being too clustered in means that you're not, you're in an echo chamber, you're not exposed to new things, right? And b- the weird thing is both of those things are true. And that's something I don't think enough people are addressing that, yes, you do need a community, a community that you can check in with, a community that can give you feedback, a community you can learn new ideas from. But the way that you serve that community best is also by not being in it all the time, by interacting mm. with other communities, bringing, being the, the bridge, what in, elsewhere in the book we call the bridge over a structural whole, connecting other communities, but also being out there gives you an idea of what the market wants, right? So the key with Murano and the glassblowers is that they were still connected to the city of Venice. They could still travel over. Their workshops were over there. So they're learning and refining their techniques over there, but they're still selling their goods back in Venice where they're understanding what the market wants and how to adapt from that. And you see it in, in careers, everything from investment banking to um, one of my favorite studies in the whole book is the study of organizational misfits, which was in a large I believe technology company, you see these people that learn how to vacillate back and forth between a tight silo of trusted people who they can grow and develop and get feedback in, and then being out in the larger world, they're the ones that tend to thrive. And the, the analogy, there's this great quote, I'm, this is my turn to botch a quote, because I'm not sure I'm going to get this right, <laughs> I don't even know who it's from, but they talk about like a ship is safe in the harbor, but that's not what ships are for, right? And that's how I kind of like to think about it. You need to be in a harbor to restock, to repair, to get better. But that's not what you're for. You're for the sea. You're for being out there in the ocean. That's awesome. All right. Well, that's a good place to end. I really enjoyed this conversation with you, David, especially since I always like to think of myself as the bridge between the business and showing artists how they can now apply that to be better marketers because there's so many marketers who are teaching people how to be health coaches and, or coach other coaches. And there's very few who are really helping creatives really understand how this applies to them. So thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Do you have any last words for my listeners before we call this episode complete? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just reiterate one of the ideas that we were just talking about, which is we, we tend to think of this like 
show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Or you're the average of the five people you interact with most. And the, the truth is, we found this through studies. It's not just the people you're connected to. Up to three degrees of separation away from you, the way that norms and influences and information is shapes you. So you have to pay attention not just to who you're with, but who they're with and your broader network. Your network determines who you become and then that determines a bunch of other things. So the best way to grow deliberately towards your ideal self is to pay attention to what the ideal network for you to be embedded in is. Wow. I love that. All right. Well, thanks so much again for joining us today, David. Now, don't forget, you can grab his workbook. The link to that will be on the show notes, shulmanart.com forward slash 22, as well as a link to get that book, Friend of a Friend, so you can dive into all these topics. And like I said, whether you want to listen to that on Audible or like I like to do uh, well, I, I do both, actually. I will listen to a book, but I also like to own it. I, they can't see me because it's a podcast, but you can see. I actually I love it. I, I love it. it. Yeah, I, I, I do the same thing, by the way. WhisperSync is amazing because you can just flip back and forth between the Kindle and the audio and all that. It's fantastic. Yeah. And sometimes like, I'll, I'll listen to a book first. If I really love it, I like to own it. It's like my 18-year-old calls it. He likes to have it as the trophy. Hmm. That you, that you completed the your- book. Correct. Right. Well, hopefully people don't find this one as too much of a, of a gauntlet to, to move No, no, no. It's, it, was, it was very... It's got a souvenir. How's that? It's the souvenir yeah. of the experience. I actually got my first job. So we were talking also my first job on, was on Wall Street. And I got my first job because I told the people who were interviewing me that I was reading Continuing Finance. And they said, how'd you like it? I says, well, I couldn't get past the second chapter. And it turned out that was the right answer because nobody gets past the second chapter unless you have a PhD. <laughs> so like if I was dishonest about that, I would, probably wouldn't have gotten the job. Anyway, so thank you everyone for listening. If you found this episode valuable, please subscribe to the Inspiration Place on iTunes or wherever you listen so you don't miss out on future episodes. I'll be speaking with Denise Jacobs, author of Banish Your Inner Critic. I love Denise, by the way. That's going to be an awesome interview, too. And once again, the links for today's show notes you can find at chillmanart.com forward slash 22. So thank you, David, and thank you, everyone, for joining in today. Oh, thank you again so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Inspiration Place podcast. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash shulmanart, on Instagram at shulmanart, and of course, on shulmanart.com. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, you have to check out the Inspired Insiders Club. It's my monthly membership program where you get weekly inspiration from me. Every week, I share with you techniques that I use in my own art for drawing and painting in both watercolor and mixed media. Plus, you'll get a weekly idea video so that you never run out of ideas for how to make the art your own in your own style. If you're feeling stuck in your art and your goal for 2019 is to unleash greater creativity or to spend more time painting, but you need a little help creating that habit, then the Inspired Insiders Club will help you get there. Come join me over at shulmanart.com. That's shulman with a C, shulmanart.com forward slash join. I'd love to have you join me in the Inspired Insiders Club. See you there.